There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Midpoint. And my guest today, I'm delighted to say, is Andy Osho, a comedian, writer and actress. Her CV is wonderfully diverse, from Mock the Week to performing on Let's Dance for Comic Relief and recently starring in Line of Duty as Gail Vella. She's the only person to have won Mastermind the Celebrity Version twice. She published her debut novel, Asking for a Friend, last year. She starred in a host of plays and films too and has a really important voice on social issues, not least last year during Black Lives Matters when I found her Instagram lives to be educational, informative and most of all inclusive. I met her almost 11 years ago when she very kindly mentored me for a stand-up comedy competition at a charity event and uh, I certainly put her through her paces. (laughs) I think I worked her quite hard. This week's episode is brought to you by Solgar, who've launched over 300 science-backed vitamins and minerals for you to choose from and recently launched Menoprime. A single daily tablet of Menoprime provides whole-body, hormone-free, plant-based support for women aged 45 and over. Now, a few of you have noticed we have new music this series, which I'm delighted to say is composed and performed by my very talented brother-in-law, Elvis Lederer. Cheers, Elvis. Andy, it is so lovely to see you. How are you? Yeah, I'm really well, thank you. It's good to see you too. What's going on? What's happening? So you catch me at an interesting time. I am very much needing a break and I'm having one of those like reactive breaks rather than like proactively realising, okay, you're probably going to be quite tired from what you've been doing or whatever so take a break. Like I'm, I'm knackered. And so I'm having to go, right, that's it. Hands <laughs> off the wheel. <laughs> I'm stopping now. Well, thank you for fitting <laughs> us in then. So how does, I mean, obviously we're not able to really go anywhere unless you've got a special reason to travel to the fair one. And so, or <laughs> right. Falklands. Oh, those so are what, our options. What are you going to do? Like, what are you going to do to relax? Falklands. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. What am I going to do? I think I'm just going to hang out with folks. I mean, that's if they'll have me. I mean, I'm, I'm making huge assumptions about the people that I know. They might be like, nah, we're good. Um, but yeah, I just got the work-life balance thing out of balance. It's right. more like that, really. Right. So, I, I, and I don't... I Gosh, I don't take holidays. And it's that classic thing of like, when you love your job, you don't realise that sometimes it's still good to stop doing it every now and again. But you're freelance like like me and you kind of go, yes, 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 yes. Yes. Oh my God, yes. (laughs) Because you're worried that if you say no, they might not come back and ask me again. Even with your level of success, do you still feel that? I have a whole story about what happens if I say no to something, about how I'll basically end up destitute. That's where it will (laughs) lead. (laughs) Me saying no to something will just see me like shaking a tin outside like Tottenham Court Road Station. It's like it's that severe in my mind where the story goes so I have to sort of have a rational word with myself and go it'll be fine well this this seems like a really good time to just take stock doesn't it actually and have a little break yeah I I think well I mean yeah I I I embrace the lockdown a little bit too much actually (laughs) like I'm sort of I'm considering keeping it going just locally like basically in in my house (laughs) But I, I mean, I've liked the quiet probably a bit too much. I know, I, obviously, I wouldn't want anyone to lose their livelihoods. And I know it's been really tough for folks, but there's been bits of it that I've just been like, can we keep this going? I think I don't like, think you're alone, though. I think there's a lot of people that have enjoyed having... It was just taking the breather for a little while out of life, yeah. wasn't it? And just like, I, 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 this is so, this is such a minor thing, but I've really enjoyed seeing people just walking mm. With their families, I think that's really lovely. And you, just, before it took a pandemic to have people like turn off the telly and just go out and have a walk with their families. But people did turn on the telly a lot, and people watched a this lot of box sets and a lot of. Te- and some of that telly has been cracking, and it brings me really early on in this chat to one of those things was the last series of Line of Duty, in which you oh, start, obviously. Right. Yes, um, yeah. I, I just want to know what it's like when something as iconic as that kind of gets, your agent says, I assume it was your agent, says to you, oh, I've had a call about Line of Duty. I mean, what what, what are the feelings when you hear that? Yeah, you feel feelings. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the stuff goes on. 
<laughs> there's st- stuff definitely goes on. Um, it's funny as well because there's some shows that you like professionally know are going to be sort of advantageous to your career, and there's other shows that you're just a, like a massive fan of, and so it's a different thing when a show like that comes in because I'd already binged all of the first five seasons or whatever it was. And then they called me in and it was not until I was in the audition that they told me that the character dies and that, you know, you're going to be mainly in archive, well, only in archive footage and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I had to sort of game face it, like sort of, shit, <laughs> but great, <laughs> but shit. But it was just really cool to be involved in something that you really like and you know other people like as well. I mean, this, it's almost like the fact that it's so popular was secondary. It's the fact that I really love the mm. show. That was what really made it special for me. Do you me. get to work with Jed Mercurio? Does, do you speak to him? Does he have much input? Yeah, so he he was, it was almost like all my stuff was like a second unit thing. So he was my director. I never met any of the directors of the main shoot. So I was on this little sort of annex shoot and we got all my stuff done really quickly. Just lots of costume changes and makeup changes and hair changes. And stuff. In a way, like afterwards, I, I almost not forgot about it, but I didn't think that much of it. But then once they'd announced when it was going to air and I was already doing press for like my book. So people were like, great. OK, we've got her on to talk about the book. Well, we can also ask about Line of Duty. So that machine all started up again. And, and, and of course, at that point, I suppose you don't really know how your parts are going to play out. Because even after you've recorded it, they could always change things, can't they? They can always take stuff away and add stuff in. Honest to God, like I don't take anything for granted when I've shot something. I actually wait until I've seen myself in it to know that I made the cut, to even really tell people about it sort of thing. But they had me do some ADR, which is like where you replace bits of audio that haven't quite worked out if they want to add a new line here or there. So I thought, well, if they're asking me to do that, that must mean I made the cut <laughs> sort of thing. So I was like, okay, I think I'm okay to tell people I'm definitely in it. And then I, I saw that the you know the press team were using my name in all the press releases and stuff. Because you can end up on the cutting room floor for so many different mm. reasons. Like I was in an episode of Lewis and they cut me. I was, it was like years ago as I was a receptionist. Did a really bang up job, actually. <laughs> but but they, they just had wrote me a letter even. They were really sweet and they said, we're really sorry, but, you know, we didn't need the scene. So we've had to cut your character sort of thing. So it can happen, I'm, like, for I'm so many reasons. I'm a bit disappointed, Andy, because, you know, you helped me get a stand-up comedy routine and then you got a part playing a TV presenter and you didn't call me. Oh, I was a bit, I yeah, thought, right. That's such that a work? good point. Next time, though, right? Next time. <laughs> <laughs> you, you absolutely smashed it. You didn't need any help. Um <laughs> You know, because you started out trained as an actress, didn't you, at the very beginning, before yeah, you then went yeah, into stand-up yeah. comedy. And obviously you're acting all the time. Is stand-up comedy still a thing? Are you still working on routines? No. You know, I actually... Um completely stepping away from it. Retiring because, officially. Basically, yeah, recovering stand-up. Because um, <laughs> I, I realised that I was sort of um, holding on to the title because it has value and I honestly thought to myself, if I'm not that, then what am I? Do people see, you know, because my stand-up career, it, it has thus far eclipsed my acting career. Like people wouldn't firstly think of me as an actor. So it felt like, oh, if I let go of that, then I'm just sort of, yeah, I, I, it was it was just tough, really, like letting go of something that, you know, has just loads of value. But I realised that I'm probably not going to go back to it. Why? At least what was the, What was the thinking? Probably around about 2012, I was kind of burnt out, basically. I'd just been working so, like intensively for, I, I don't know how long, without breaks. And every time I took a break, it made no difference. I came back exhausted from the break. And I sort of looked down the road at people who were further along in their stand-up careers. And I realised that what they had, I didn't want. So I was I was on the wrong rails, basically. And I was quite depressed as well. And so I just like let go of everything <laughs> again, hands off the steering wheel. And I moved to the States for quite a few years. And it was there that I realized that stand-up comedy didn't give me the room that I needed to express everything creatively that I wanted to do. And so it just wasn't a fit anymore. I mean, I jokingly say to people like I, I got therapy and therefore I didn't need to do stand-up anymore. <laughs> but also you think that when you do stand-up, you're completely creatively in control. Whereas when you're reading or performing somebody else's words. I know you do write as well, you write plays, but, you know, when you're acting, you're not always delivering your own words, but you didn't feel that stand-up was giving you that 
creating I, what what I started to think towards the end of it was that what I think about and what I'm concerned about I don't know how to make that funny and right. as much as you are creatively in control there's an agreement and you know you can't break that agreement really because otherwise it stops being stand-up yeah Do you know what I mean like if you want to start just delivering doing... a speech <laughs> basically like you think about some of those comedians who have like there's one who I have particularly in mind who just kind of I don't know maybe had an awakening or something but the comedy in his routines went down to sort of 10 percent or something and it became these sort of monologues about the state of the world sort of thing and so that's breaking the agreement to my mind and I wanted to just break out of what felt quite contained, like, you know, title of comedian. That's really, it's, it's really brave, isn't it, to do that? Because what you say is like the comedy was actually the thing. You're doing things like the Apollo, you're doing Mock the Week. They're really high profile in people's living rooms. You know, it's a level of fame that perhaps the other stuff wasn't going to deliver or notoriety. And I don't know, yeah. I don't know about the financial rewards, but, you know, to give that, that level of your ego then has to kind of go, okay, I don't need that. And that's, that's a, you know, something that not everybody comes to at the right time. Yeah, it makes it sound like I thought this through, but I was <laughs> tracking how I was feeling rather than what was logically the right thing. I mean, all of this is me tracking what I'm feeling. Like even getting into acting was not a logical, that was probably the dumbest thing in many ways. Like it's like I had a regular job, a steady income, you know, all the rest of it. And then I thought, hmm, <laughs> how can I mess my life up? Um, I'll go into this career with no like prospects or certainty or anything like that. So it was more like I just felt like I couldn't do it anymore. And what I noticed was there's starting to become this gap between the person on stage and who I was. Mm -hmm. And it was slowly becoming uncomfortable even to go on stage because she wore a particular type of clothes and she had a particular attitude and all the rest of it, which was fun until mm. it wasn't. And so it was more like if I'm following these feelings, I have to, uh, what I'm feeling is I don't want to do that anymore. And was, while you were in it, because um, I wanted to talk to you about being a woman in, in comedy, being a black woman in comedy, did you feel supported? Did you feel when you started that journey? And maybe was that a factor at all in you staying there? For the most part, I think I did feel quite supported. But where I didn't feel supported was people taking a risk with me in terms of giving me my own vehicle. So producers basically were very comfortable to put me into a successful already existing you know entity Format. like Mark the week or something like that but they weren't willing to go let's have her front this thing because this was you know almost 10 years ago so it's different now there's a lot more opportunities there's a lot more people of color in comedy and there's been a lot more conversation about it but at the time there was like a handful, not even, I don't even know if you could count them on your hand, how many black women there were in stand-up comedy, like who were successful, not because of their quality of work, but because of uh, the, you know, ceilings, <laughs> not just ceilings, glass ceilings, glass doors, walls, walls, glass boxes, everything, yeah, that was put around us. And so I got really frustrated with that. That was kind of low level heartbreaking because you just see and you oh, I'm better than him. <laughs> you know, you're watching stuff that gets put out and you're just like, I could have written that. Mm. Or I've, I've, you know, pitched you ideas that are stronger than that. Mm. But it's because that it felt like because that face fitted. That's why those people were getting given those opportunities. I went in and out of that, but that that wasn't the reason, really. It was it was more like it just didn't fit anymore. It didn't fit how I felt about myself and uh, about my career. I think that that was really the deciding factor. So now you've taken yourself out of it and you look in. Do you think mm. there are more opportunities, and that that actually a young version of you is going to find her way quicker? Yeah, I think so. But I still think that for women and particularly for black women or women of colour in comedy, it's still a challenge, but it's not like it was when I was doing it. And it's not like I didn't get opportunities, but it's more the quality of them and where, like I say, where people were prepared to position me as opposed to somebody else in skinny jeans and, you know, asymmetric haircut. So <laughs> <laughs> you obviously your funny bones 
don't go away, do they? You know, you don't suddenly just turn off the tap. <laughs> yeah, right. So the stuff that, you know, that you wrote, the funny stuff that you created, whether it's sketches or whether it's your routines, your stand-up routines, where does that all well, go now? It, you know, it's really funny because I, I have a theory that ideas are like these entities that want to find a home. And if they feel like they're not going to find a home with a particular individual, they go elsewhere. And so in a way, the tap did turn off because I noticed jokes weren't coming to me. Other types of ideas were coming to me. And then recently, you know, in the last two or three years, jokes have started coming again and they've been able to be channeled into the book. You'll have to read it rather than just watch it, but... And does it come easy to you writing? Did, did the book flow? Did you did you kind of get it in all done no way whatsoever? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I realised sort of quite early on, or not well, I wish it was earlier, but anyways, writing the first book was that this, this concept of a vomit draft, which you just get it all out. And so I wasn't doing that in the first draft. I was like painstakingly trying Mm. to get every chapter right because I didn't want there to be any notes. And I figured, Mm. oh, if I can get this out in perfect form, then they'll just go, ha, why don't we just send this straight to the printers? And uh, (laughs) that didn't work out that way. And so I realized with this second one, just get it out. The thing about that is it's an act of trust because you are trusting yourself to be Mm. able to take this because it's way too long. It's like 190,000 words and they're looking for 90,000 words. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what happens when you vomit draft something out is you end up like overwriting. But the the point is, is I said to myself, in that 190,000 words is a really great 90,000 word book. You just have to find it. You said uh, earlier on when you were talking about your comedy and the end of the comedy that you were depressed. And was that was that something that took you a long time to work through? And how did you work through that? Yeah, so that that happened around middle of like 2012. And part of the process was therapy and interestingly, one of the things that she had me do was reconnect with my dad. I hadn't spoken to him for quite a long time. And so every week there was a little task that I had to do to read because he's, he's in Nigeria. So it was like a little almost investigation trying to find him and like find people that had a number for him. And I ended mm-hmm. up meeting a half brother and, you know, all this sort of stuff. But I also just took myself out. So I went to the States and I initially went to L.A. for I think like four months or something like that, just to get away. I just felt like it's okay to just stop for a second and realise that actually I think I could make a little life here or at least like see what the industry has for me. So um, so I moved there, got a green card and moved there. And I think that process helped me to realise that there was more to me than just the comedy because I had become mm. identified with the label comedian. And so mm. realising that there maybe there was an artist in here somewhere. And even at the beginning, I was embarrassed to even say artist. Or, Who do you think you are? I sound like a mm. bit of a ponce or whatever. But mm. just embracing the fact that there's more to me than just making jokes, basically, about you know, Stratford. <laughs> LA seems a, an interesting place to go to to improve your mental health. Do you know what I mean? It's because it's such a, <laughs> it's not it's not exactly like a Swiss lake, is it? You know, or kind of uh, some Austrian Alps scene. <laughs> that's, that's a really good point, actually. I mean, had I thought it through, <laughs> that's probably where I would have gone, like some sort of Alpine retreat or whatever. But um, it, it was more the break. And I tell you what, sunshine does do quite a bit for your mental health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It was, you know what? In my book, I write that one of my characters, she she does the same thing. She disappears off to LA and she says that it's a place of possibility. Hmm. And I think that's what I connected with. Because I didn't want to withdraw from the industry, but I just wanted another vantage point. What did you miss about the UK? Why'd you come back? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, good point. Um, Well, I tell you what I missed uh, is I missed the sense of humour. Because when I got to LA, I was still doing stand-up for probably a couple of years. And the particularly the Los Angeles comedy scene is horrible. Is like, it? it's horrible. What, just brutal? <laughs> like- it, yeah, well, first thing I noticed is that American comedians, and I don't know if this is particular to Los Angeles, but they're not really, there's, the, the camaraderie doesn't feel the same as in the UK. They're quite sort of backbitey in the UK. You'll shake hands or whatever and... And you, whatever the comedian before has set up with the audience, you'll go with it sort of thing. But they won't. They'll cut, they'll take the legs from under you sort of thing. It's quite, it's quite brutal in that respect. And their green room 
in the British green room, people will talk about their kids and how the journey was and where <laughs> the weather. But yeah, exactly. The weather, just normal things because they're normal human beings. But in the States, it's all, oh my God, I saw you on Letterman last night. Or, oh my God, I saw, you know. It's all oh, industry. Oh, it's all industry. And so I used to just like, just like not speak in these green rooms because I just, I've got nothing to contribute here. But also I don't want to become that yeah. sort of, do you know what I mean? All encompassing. Uh, that is yeah. all about. Yeah. It was like, it wasn't a green room. It was a boardroom. <laughs> yeah. So the British sense of humour and the, the abandon that we have with laughing at things that are outrageous. We're much more comfortable with that than they are. This is particular to LA. I didn't travel. I didn't like do any mm. gigs outside. East Coast. Of, n- oh, well, New York would be different. I think mm. that they've got quite a sophisticated humour. And so that's a great place to, to play as a stand-up. But in LA, I think what I noticed about LA is it's a city where a city of followers. It looks like trends are coming out of LA, but they're not. They're just looking and just going, okay, that's what they're doing. Let's do that. So it's not that inventive, really. Not Not really. I I think there's a lot of people just thinking, okay, I don't want to lose my job here. So let me see what such and such is doing. And then we'll do a version of that. And every now and again, someone will take a risk or they'll take a Swedish show and, you know, adapt it or whatever. And everyone goes, oh, my God, that's incredible. I miss architecture. I miss Mm. the depth. Variety. Yes, the depth of of culture that we have in the UK. It's Mm. so old. Mm-hmm. And and in LA, if anything, sort of, I don't know, sixty years old, and like, knock it down, <laughs> put something else there. Yeah, so things like that, really. What about family? Oh, those guys. Yeah, I guess I miss them. <laughs> <laughs> You're you used to do really good set about your family and about your Nigerian upbringing mm-hmm. and how you know there was a difference even within African communities as to kind of like the way kids were brought up and the difference between a West Indian kind of like upbringing and it's made me. I kind of understand in a way how people get on and what they do because of that real what sounded like quite harsh upbringing really you know in terms of <laughs> yeah. in terms of in terms of expectation I mean there was there was a lot of um discipline it sounded like yeah that's right I mean if if I was ever to go back to stand-up I would probably still talk about the same things but what I would do is drill down deeper mm-hmm. because what I did in that first iteration is I kind of just scratched at the surface of the truth. Yes, there was a lot of discipline, but if I was to do stand up again, I would talk about why. Mm-hmm. Do you know the fact that she had displaced herself to come to this brand new culture and it was mm-hmm. like an onslaught of information that she had to try and sort of figure out. And mm-hmm. this is your mom you're talking this about. This is my mom, yeah. And, you know, dad being pretty useless actually and so having to raise these three kids on her own and so there wasn't necessarily time for that sort of nurturing whatever and she had to bring in the discipline so I'd like so do you see what I mean like this is yeah, this hard to make that shit funny but it, yeah <laughs> except that I kind of got that as an inference without you even saying it I kind of oh that's cool so you know I, I read that as her not just being a really harsh woman but being somebody who was had all these challenges because you know culturally she's kind of going what's going on here yeah, I've got yeah. these kids and and same way you know a lot of immigrant communities there were a lot of Polish kids in my school mm-hmm. and one of my best friends at school was Polish and her parents um, at home they only spoke Polish there was about eight of them in the house and her dad was incredibly strict and I think part of that was his you know kind of we've come here we're gonna we're gonna make a good life mm. and everybody's gonna everybody's gonna work hard and you're all gonna you're not gonna have fun you know like they weren't allowed <laughs> to go to um, pop concerts I always remember that with oh. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, there was certain music they weren't really allowed to bring into the house and stuff. It was a bit like Footloose. Wow. And, uh, okay. So, oh, my God. <laughs> wow. We didn't have that. Although I wasn't allowed to go to a pop concert by myself, but I wanted to go and see Bros. And the deal was, as I remember it, that I would go with uh, my mum to see uh, Bros. Mom- <laughs> no, it was worse. We went to see Cliff Richard. That oh. was the deal. If I went to see Cliff Richard, then I was allowed to go and see Bros. I don't know how I that's, came up with that. Strange, deal. That's a strange deal. <laughs> It is. So so my first concert was Cliff Richard. I went to the Oh Boy concert at the Wembley Arena. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> what did your mum make of it? Well, she loves Cliff Richard. I mean, she was delighted, but uh, it wasn't so great for me. It was, it was an all right show. What has she made of your career? So at the beginning, terrified because... It, it's it's just so uncertain, and obviously, you know, as I've just briefly described, her 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 goal really was to create stability, 
And so for me <laughs> to then go into such a Precarious. unstable, yeah, exactly, <laughs> career was just like, it was terrifying, I think, for her. But then when I threw it all up in the air again and went to the States and I would like Skype her and stuff and just be in pieces going, I don't know what I'm doing here, but I just know I'm supposed to be here. And that would sort of trigger her fears for me kind of thing. So I had to actually stop doing that. I had to just, whenever we spoke, I just had to tell her everything was gravy, even though I I, I didn't know what I was doing there a lot of the time. And I felt mm. quite lost actually. But uh, yeah, now now that I think I'm more and more of an even keel with everything and know what I want to create for myself, I think she's proud and yeah. just being uh, be able to enjoy the fact that her church folks say, oh, I saw your daughter on Comic Relief. I was watching Line of Duty the other day. Or da, 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 you yeah, know, whatever it yeah. is. So that, that she can now enjoy. I saw a blog, I think you've written about bringing people home, relationships home that were kind of like, you know, and then, and then there was another one, and then, you know, and then never kind of like having continuity with your family and kind of saying you're taking a break from dating. Is that stayed? Are you, are you kind of like comfortable now kind of taking people home again? Do you feel like they have to be somebody you're going to be with the rest of your life or are you, um, are you still kind of out there? I went through a brief phase of just throwing the towel in completely in terms of relationships. I just broke up with somebody like February of this year. It's funny because I wrote an article in Red Magazine just going, yeah, and I'm just trying this new approach. Well, we just see how it goes. And I've met this new guy, Dean. Duh, duh, duh. Anyways, by the time the article came out, we'd stopped seeing each other. So. <laughs> that was a bit schoolgirl, Andy. A bit of a schoolgirl error there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, those long lead publications. <laughs> I, well, I didn't realise how long the lead was going to be. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the point of the article wasn't to announce that I'm seeing this person. It was more about, it was actually about my dad talking about how um, the absence of a father can impact on a woman's mm-hmm. um, romantic prospects, basically, mm. and her outlook. And it's, it's quite a profound effect, which I'm only just sort of really becoming present to. But... Oh gosh, I just keep doing this. this, It's different faces on the same problem. And I I just, I'm done. I just can't, I'm I'm actually having quite a nice life. And there's a brilliant Whoopi Goldberg quote where she's like, you know, someone said, oh, will you ever marry again or something like that? And she's like, I don't want anyone else in my house. And I was like, I love, <laughs> me neither, babes. I feel you. I don't want anyone in here either. I suppose the reason either. why I asked that in relation to your mum is because... I imagine she looked at you as a little girl and thought, okay, you know, by the time my Andy's in her late 40s, I'm going to have a whole brood of grandchildren and she's going to be married. Because that was the traditional life that she probably expected Uh for you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how how does she kind of deal with your serial dating and not dating? If she could have her dream, it would be that I'd settle down with somebody and have kids and all the rest of it. But it's just, that's not who I am. And... I think she's let go of the idea that I'll ever give her grandchildren, Uh, certainly not biological ones. But my brothers have got that covered. You know, she's got four from them. So she's gravy. She's all good. I went through a sort of a relatively brief phase of thinking, yes, I think I would like children. And then they're not, just Mm. not. Um, My children is my, it sounds cheesy, but it's my work. That's, That's what I birth into the world. And that's what more interests me. I don't think I've got the selflessness to be a parent, frankly. I'm too concerned with myself. <laughs> to, that, to come to that, you know, you're 48, we're the same age, and you to come to that kind of peace and comfortableness, if you like, with that decision and, and, and the confidence with which you say it is brilliant, isn't it? Well, I, it, it's, that has been a journey because I haven't always felt like that. But what I've realised is that I... I there's so, family can look so many different ways anyways. And when I really drilled down, I could see that it wasn't um, biological children that I was wanting when I was having this yearning. It was family. Mm-hmm. And you can create family out of friendship groups. You can create mm-hmm. families with a partner and pets. You know, community, you can, isn't it? It's community, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that was, it was like this, oh, just just being released from me mm. of feeling like this need to bi- biologically chase that thing. I've let that go. The journey now is obviously finding a guy who doesn't want that either, or maybe ugh, ideally doesn't have What about stepkids? But... Stepkids. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's literally what the book is about because I dated somebody who had kids and, and not that the book is about that experience, but it inspired this because it's such a challenge for so many women especially if you don't have your own kids already, like to go into Mm. a unit that's kind of fully formed, even though mum's elsewhere, 
I wanted to write about that and just say, you know, this is, let's be, let's be real about, about that experience because it's not the easiest thing to go through. Now, uh, another thing I've read about you, and this is going to, I'm going to bring our expert on in a moment. Oh, lovely. I like experts. Uh, well, today's expert is a dietitian. Um, uh, because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I didn't, I didn't choose it specifically, but then I read something you'd written about, and you might've just posted something on Instagram. I can't remember where I read it, that you were either starting a healthy eating plan or you were looking to kind of do a longer term. Uh, you said you put a bit of weight on in lockdown and you were going to eat well. Was Have I, have I misquoted yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, that's true. I, I mean, I think I eat pretty well anyways. It was more like just doing something about that. And um yeah, eating well. I I attempt to eat mainly vegan, but I don't call myself a vegan. I don't think I will ever be vegan. But for the most part, especially during the week, I don't eat any dairy or meat products. Mm. And it's yeah, just like I just wanted to shed that um, lockdown weight because, as I, I said in that, um, I think it was a post or a blog or whatever. I if I was a boxer, a male boxer, I would be like a cruise weight or whatever. That's it. Is. it that's <laughs> it. You said about your which weight of boxing you were going to be. Which yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, someone corrected me. I said welterweight, and someone. I was like, um, I think he'll find it's cruise weight. <laughs> oh, God. All right, thanks, mate. That's that's sports fans for you, Andy. Right, oh, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's that's the internet for you, isn't it? There's always someone who's just like, yeah. I think you'll find. Yeah. <laughs> so so how is that going? What are you are you exercising more or are you just cutting back on what you're eating? Yeah, so I found this like no advertising, but like this online thingy so I could work out at home. I'm still a gym member, but I haven't been I haven't had my vaccine yet. So I felt like, oh, maybe the responsible thing to do is not to go around the gym just yet. So I've been running as well. And uh, I twisted my ankle like two years ago. So I've been quite nervous about, I twisted my ankle running as well. Mm. So I've been quite nervous about going out and doing that again, but I love it. It's, oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's like one of my favorite things. I mean, well, actually lying around doing nothing is actually one of my favorite things. <laughs> but like, if I have to do something active, then it's, you know, it's it's something that really charms so with you me say for some reason. At- 48, you're feeling physically, you're feeling pretty good. Are you happy with how things are going? Oh, I could do with my 28 year old knees. I mean, I haven't, I haven't started the menopause or anything like that. I don't know when that's going to, when that's going to kick in. I have hot flushes, but I think that's nerves. Have you had blood tests? Uh, oh, you know? no, no, to be fair, I haven't, but I don't feel any different. Right. So um, it could have happened and I just haven't noticed. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I can be quite unobservant about things like that. Lots of <laughs> lots of grey hair. I want to cut my hair off at some point and just start again and not dye my hair anymore. That's a gift that I want to give myself. What, just shave it completely? Yeah, yeah. Start Just start again. Like, why not? There's a hairdresser, uh, I think it's in Hackney, it's called It Will Grow Back. And it's like, yes, <laughs> Like, why am I even fretting about this? Do you think that's that's a caveat for them if things go wrong? I, I'm not sure I want to go to a hairdresser. <laughs> yeah, the that's true. Like, don't, they might as well don't worry, them. it'll grow back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Another hairdresser called Don't Blame Us. A restaurant called kind of, you know, you'll get over the food poisoning. Um, so. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a fair point. I mean, I never saw it as that. I saw it as a, you know, look on the bright side. But you're right, it could be a disclaimer. Um, well, <laughs> A lot happens, obviously, to us in this age. It sounds like you've kind of, things are going okay for you. And, you know, at 48, it could be another four or five years before you do start to get kind of, you know, menopausal or perimenopausal symptoms. But but one of those things that happens is, you know, our metabolisms change and the way we kind of process food or the way we kind of hang on to things in our diet can change. And so Ruth Wood is a dietitian who actually, she specialises a lot in mental health related areas. But today, Ruth is going to hopefully give us a little bit of an insight to what's going on in midlife. She's there. Hello, Ruth. Hiya. Ruth, you, (laughs) I'm just saying you are, um, mental health is an area in particular that you're really interested in to do with diet and I am too actually because I'm really into probiotics and the gut health and and that kind of area but we're also in this phase of life we start to kind of hang on to weight a little bit longer you know I, I don't I don't shift it as quickly if I put a few pounds on and I'm not as good with like kind of high GI foods you know the kind of dense carbohydrates and things so what is actually happening to us and what what should we be eating it's, a, it's actually a fascinating topic because I'm got to say I struggle with the same thing even though I kind of get the body and get the chemistry of it all. <laughs> I think we all go through it. I don't think it's uh, anyone avoids it particularly. Um, I think one of the key things for people to understand is when menstruation stops, that's what menopause is, menstruation stopping, hormones basically control everything that goes on in your body. So progesterone stops, oestrogen drops massively and I had, I had someone the other day say, why is it called menopause when it's not about men? So, 
You know, it's, it's really important. And it's not not a pause, is it? It's a stop. It's a men a stop. It absolutely is a men a stop. So, so I think that's really important to understand that it means that your, your menstruation is stopping. So the ovaries are slowing down and stopping. The body is really clever and the adrenals take over. Our adrenals are the glands that sit on top of our kidneys and help us deal with stress. So... When we're stressed through life, and modern life's obviously more stressful, the adrenals don't know the difference between a true stress, like a, a, a horrendous stress, or a daily modern life stress, like sitting in a traffic jam or getting up late and having to rush to work and all those sort of things. So what happens is we start producing all this cortisol and it releases right. sugars to help us deal with right. it. But we might just be sitting at our desk. So we're not chasing some kind of animal to eat for dinner as we would have used those sugars thousands and thousands of years ago. <laughs> we're sat at our desk scrolling on uh, on a website. <laughs> <That's exactly laughs> so there's only one place for those sugars to go and that's our backsides, basically. Is that, <laughs> is that the nub of it? <laughs> that's basically the nub of it. So we've got all this sugar circulating and so we shouldn't eat late. We shouldn't exercise that late because you're creating stress hormones and then we might go to bed. And we've done like a really late spin right. class or something. It's not necessarily going to be very helpful because you're producing cortisol and then you're producing sugar. So what can we do in our diets to counter or to, to kind of offset potential negative ramifications of that? So what we need to look at more in midlife is how we can support our adrenals and not be try and not be so stressed. Mm. And they're not just lifestyle stresses. They can be dietary stressors, yeah. So things like caffeine is like an obvious dietary stressor. So Do you drink a lot of coffee, Andy? None. Don't like None. it. Good. I good like stuff. the smell. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it makes me go a bit crazier than now. I had an espresso martini, not quite the same thing. But um, yeah, I was just like, I couldn't finish it. I had to give it to my mate. He, he lapped it out. But yeah, I, was, I can't drink it. And did you feel an effect of Instantly. that? Instantly, you... yeah. It, but the thing is, I don't drink coffee at all. The only caffeinated thing I, I consume, I suppose a little bit of chocolate and and matcha, but that's hardly, you know, it's very mild, isn't mm. it? So, yeah, if I actually have a coffee, I'm bouncing off the walls. Can't do it. Yeah, it's quite incredible how also how tolerant we can mm. become of it. Because, you know, as a nutrition, I don't drink alcohol, but I, but caffeine is my, you know has always been quite a thing for me. And I've got such a high tolerance right. for it, so I have to watch. Well, and, and also with alcohol, because I don't drink very much uh, as well. I mean, I'm probably counterbalancing my 20s. But um, I, so if I have a drink, it goes straight to my head, like to the point where I'm almost like not in control of my mouth for the first... You know, there's all kinds <laughs> of stuff's coming out. I'm saying all kinds of things. And then it sort of calms down. But yeah, it, and because I, you know, it, it, it's so long between drinks, it happens every time. <laughs> like every time. Mm. I have a glass yeah. of wine. I'm just You've like, got to start drinking know. more. I Andy. know. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I was onto something in my 20s, you know, drinking every day. I mean, I think I knew what time it was. So, Andy, I mean, you're doing all the checklist things well here. No coffee, hardly any alcohol. What foods then, Ruth, should we be adding? I mean, we kind of know what we shouldn't eat, don't we? Is it, is it burgers by any chance, Ruth? I've got a feeling that if I'm doing all the right things, then it's burgers. <laughs> I'm not going to disappoint you here, actually, because so you can have still have those kind of foods The the key um, nutrients we need in midlife are calcium, magnesium, vitamin D, our omega fats, chromium really helps with our blood sugar control and vitamin B5. So B vitamins plus B5, pantothenic acid. So these are our kind of key things that help our adrenal support. They also very much help with mental health, mood, with calming, with anxiety, play a role in depression. So you want things like dark green leafy vegetables, watercress, spinach, um, kale, rocket, nuts and seeds are really good. So, and it's being kind of creative with nuts and seeds. When you mention that to people, they often go, <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. And but but you can make sauces, creams, breads, all sorts of stuff. You know, so it's getting creative. Some, something them. I'm a fan of is soaked oats. 
like soaking them in um, apple juice. Mm. And then I mix in nuts and seeds and that and some raisins and leave it overnight. Mm. And it's, what is it called? A bircher mm. or something? Mm. Birches, the pro- they get called overnight oats now, but the proper yeah. term so, is oh, birch. So yeah. nice. And you don't have to add any sweetener to yeah. it. Like the raisins and the apple juice do uh, are in, and the sweetness, I guess, that comes out of the oats. Mm. So that's a nice way of having your, your nuts and seeds. Because I understand it. You have to break down the the nuts to be able to digest them properly. Like if you have them, you have to activate them. Yeah. Yeah, like you want to toast mm. them or soak them or that's something right. to sort of, yeah. Well, also, so, so that's a nice way oats for that, in that reason, Andy, are also a really good source of tryptophan. So, tryptophan <laughs> yeah, I knew that. Yeah, yeah that's why. That's like, that was largely why I was eating them, actually, from a, from a tryptophan. She's a fan of the tryptophan. She's actually. a fan of the tryptophan. Oh, a massive fan of the tryptophan. <laughs> so, so More I, than Cliff Richard. <laughs> so, tryptophan makes serotonin, which makes us oh. happier. So, oh. oats are great for that. Particularly a really good source of tryptophan. Vitamin D, you're looking at things like eggs, but the whole egg, but a mm. lot of the nutrient is in the yolk. Avocados are good. Oh, calcium, yes. make sure your calcium and vitamin D and magnesium levels are good. So the, the green leafy veg, the nuts, mm-hmm. the seeds, the oats, all those sort of things. Phytoestrogens, particularly. So again, seeds, lentils. I always ask our experts to give us three tips for the midlife man and woman. Uh, what would they be? Um, I would say adrenal support. So make sure that you're not overstressing your adrenals because from a male perspective and female, we don't want all those stress hormones circulating too much and causing this fat storage, which is what happens to sugar we don't use. Mm. Calcium, magnesium, vitamin D are omega fats, chromium and vitamin B5. Those are the three dietary, but also really important is weight-bearing exercise and weight because it helps us to absorb calcium into our bones. So either lifting weight or using your own body weight? Any form of strength, oh. bear, yeah. Mm. So weights are good. You've got to get yourself some weights, Andy. Get I've, some got, weights. I've got some weights, but they're too heavy. <laughs> <laughs> build up to them, build up to them. Yeah, uh, Ruth, thank you so, so much. It's so lovely to see you and to, uh, and to hear your advice. Have a great rest of your day. Take care. And you. Bye. Thanks very much, Bye. 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 Last summer, I started watching you on Instagram. You were doing some really great work uh, when obviously everything happened with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter was really taking off in the middle of the pandemic. Mm. Uh, it was the first thing, actually, that kind of overshadowed the pandemic, didn't it? Do you know what I mean? It was the mm, first piece of news right, yeah. that came along. How has life changed since then, do you think? And has it changed? Has there been real change since last summer it it would be easy to say it's one thing or another but it's not it's lots of things because there is some sort of performative allyship going on which is you know steadily retreated but there are some real actions being taken but there's also pushback as well which is quite challenging to be zen about and you know because for me in the first instance when it all first happened it was so difficult because On the one hand, you're thinking this is a person who's in another country that in theory doesn't have anything to do with me. And this happens, this isn't like the first time that the police have done this Mm -hmm. in the the States. But there was something in me that just completely knocked me off my foundation with it. And, And it felt strange. And I didn't know how to deal with it until I spoke to other black friends in the UK who were going through the same thing and people sharing... I realise, oh, we're, we're collectively, the diaspora or however you want to describe it, is is going through something in response to this. And I think it's just um, how I describe it is a sort of an agitation of a trauma or a pain that's already in us. And what's difficult is that, you know, sometimes we're told, get over it, move on, or don't worry about it, or what's that got to do with us, or the UK is not like that, or here's a report saying it's not systemically racist or whatever. And it's just like, well, this is ignoring my lived experience. I'm, tell- I'm telling you what I've experienced. I'm telling you what people I know have experienced. So that, so that is quite challenging. It's just this slow, very slow moving thing with a, a, a fair degree of resistance actually still. Really? Otherwise things would be equitable across the board for everybody. 
there's always there's got to be resistance. Otherwise, the the push would just bring the wall straight down. Right. I see what you're saying when you say resistance to just that there is a force against it. There is a force against it because there are there are so many people that would like to perpetuate the narrative that everything's already fair and equal. So what are you complaining about? Or we're not as bad as over there. Or I'm not a racist, even though, you you know, somebody might make inappropriate jokes or doesn't speak up when somebody says something unfair. Or they may have a, a view of a particular group based on nothing but stereotypes that have been perpetuated perhaps in the media or amongst their own friends or whatever. I'm still mm. yet to understand what it is that distresses people so much about racism that they can't bear to look within themselves and find it there. Because... Most of us have had, and I include myself, we've thought things that we shouldn't have. The, mm-hmm. the difference is acting on it and speaking on it. That's when it becomes problematic because the mind is a meaning-making machine anyways. It's looking for things it can recognise. And, and if it can say, oh, that person is like that and they do these things because they look that way. But we've got this, you know, cortex that can have us make better decisions and mm. go, oh, that's, that's, but that's not actually who they are. I know better. And so in terms of what happened last time and you talk about your friends and how there was this feeling this that was going on with you was that the most powerful version of that that had happened in your life you know because you must have experienced lots of different things through your life in terms of overt and covert racism and you'd seen things happen to people that were unfair did that feel like the biggest of those yeah maybe but only because of where my mind was at and where my consciousness was at because I'm thinking back to the Brixton riots and there must have been conversations that happened around those events, but I was too young to really appreciate them or participate in them even. Mm. So in my lifetime as an adult, probably it was. And the fact that it had this global impact as well. But weirdly, I I was having a conversation with this guy who does like birth charts and stuff, and this is a bit random, but he was saying that as a species, we're in this phase of people power and people pushing back. And so he was saying that there is this thing of like people pushing back and en masse saying no in a way Mm. that... Against whatever the establishment is. Uh Mm. Yeah, so it's not even just about Black Lives Matter. It's happening in all kinds of areas. No, as Mm. in response to Trump getting elected, Mm. that massive women's march that happened, it was happening everywhere, actually. Mm. So there is something definitely Mm. happening with humanity, but there is also this resistance to it and maybe you know that resistance is in all of us and maybe that's why it's such a difficult unseen thing to push against because we're paradoxes aren't we as human beings we're not one thing or another Mm. even a good person has dark thoughts so the only concern is if one is using these things to exercise one's Mm self-righteousness because that's what can happen and that's why you know being woke can sometimes misfire not being woke being awake you know because, it's kind of because actually people use it as a way to attack well then mm. well how is how is this resistance against you know black lives matter being accepted going to going to rescind if it feels under attack it's just going to defend mm. Mm. so actually there you know what is really required is this sort of transcending in a way of like transcending this idea that we I, I have to attack something to to uphold this these values and actually you don't so it's language isn't it it's so important it's about facilitating positive change as opposed to you know kind of sitting there benignly going oh good luck yeah yeah all the best (laughs) but also but ironically you know change doesn't happen there has to be a hard edge to change as well and that's why I personally am never going to be one of those really angry loud vocal activists that's just not not me but I really appreciate their value because they're the ones that cut through. They're, they cut through the hard rock so that the mm. rest of us can sort of do the nice sanding and chipping away and stuff like that. But you <laughs> need those angry sort of Peter Tatchell type voices and stuff like that at the forefront to break mm. the way for the moderates like, who follow behind and just go, yes, yes, black lives do matter. Yes, yes, yes. It's about energy, isn't it? Do well, that's it. And that's what uh, last summer felt like. It's like energy going towards something a change that needs to happen. It's very true. But the thing is, is like, to me, the um, strength of energy, like a thought has an amount of energy, but then words spoken have even more, but actions have even more. And that can happen on the negative side of things. Like you can say a mean thing and that can hurt somebody. But if you do something mean to somebody, like violence or something, that's, that's even more of a powerful thing. So in terms of supporting whatever cause it is that's important to somebody... Yes, a thought is great. A conversation is even better, but action is where it's really at. 
doing something, mm. you know, see, see, in terms of Black Lives Matter, one of the things that I um, sort of get frustrated with sometimes is that sometimes white friends will tell me about an instance where they heard a terrible thing said or did, done, but they didn't do anything. And it's just mm. like, well, well, now all, all that's happening is you're reporting back an incident of racism mm. to me, and I know about it. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah, and what are you supposed to do? With exactly, it, Andy? <laughs> exactly. What do you what... log it in your book? <laughs> yes. Oh, oh, that's the first one today. Thank you very much. I'll just note that down. <laughs> so it's actions. That's really where it's at in terms of whatever cause you're passionate about, or you really want to align yourself with, and say that you want to make a change with. Is you got to just like do something. Oh, Andy, I've taken up so much of your time, but it's been great catching up with you. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, well, likewise. We covered a lot and I've, I've learned as well. Well, to Ruth. Ruth. Dr. Ruth. Yeah, I don't know if she is a doctor. Is she a doctor? Is, let's, let's, I'm going you know to call her Dr. Ruth and that's just the way it's going to go. Baroness. I mean, let's give her a title. Baroness. Um, that is actually my title when I shop at, um, I think it's John Lewis because they let you pick any title. And so I thought, why not? And uh, when I used to have a, anyways, I used to have a bank account with anyway whatever but um yeah I was air commander so I'd always like be delighted when their mail would arrive because it'd be like dear air commander Osho meanwhile the postman thinks you're absolutely loony and he's (laughs) just going all right okay what job has she given herself today uh no he thinks I'm an air commander (laughs) (laughs) just wonders why you do it from home I don't know how she managed to do this job from home ah that is a good point yes okay all right for next time I'm going to make sure it's consistent with my living situation (laughs) Uh, best of luck with everything you're doing and the second book, I hope it's a huge success as well. Oh, thank you. Well, if I ever become a, a professional sportswoman, I, which, you know, it's impossible. I like trying new things. Uh, I hope but you're the, the one going well. But also, <laughs> right. um, you are obviously, you know, now now that you've said that, you're probably going to get the part of an ex-international athlete or something in a movie. So give us a call. And, hey, um, you know what? I will. I will hit you up if that happens. I would like to do that. I'd like a job where I have to train. Like, I, w- I would like to be in the Matrix mm. where I have to learn, like, some like oh, yeah. crazy, like, martial arts or something. But until and then... then yeah. Air Commander Keep from home. Keep running. <laughs> Take care, Andy. Thank you so All much. Right. Cheers, Gabby. Thank you so much to Andy for sharing her midlife experiences. I think her attitude to change and they've been some big, bold changes she's made in the middle of her life will resonate with a lot of people listening, as will her attitude to looking after herself mentally and physically. And thank you so much to Ruth as well for her wonderful nutritional advice and to Solgar for sponsoring us and keeping us going with their 300 vitamins and minerals in their range. Those beautiful brown glass bottles with the gold lids are so instantly recognisable when you see them on the shelves. Uh, Do check out their range. There really is something for everyone. And thank you as well to Lauren and Rethink Audio for producing, to Elvis, my lovely brother-in-law, for composing and performing our wonderful music, and to you for listening. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.